there's uh, something mysterious that all of us uh, share in common. Uh, in fact, essentially all of humanity shares this uh, in common, and that is we all experience uh, dreams, dreams in our sleep. Some of us have them often, uh, some perhaps rarely, some of us remember our dreams frequently, some perhaps struggle to remember what they dreamed. Some are peaceful, of course, some are a little bit more unsettling. I must say, I've had the same dream uh, over the years while serving as a pastor probably dozens of times. It comes in slightly different forms, but it's essentially the same dream. Uh, The dream is about public worship. Sounds good so far. But there in the dream, as people are worshiping in song, looking to the Lord uh, in prayer, I begin in the dream to get this uh, unsettled feeling, fear and anxiety, however that works, it feels real, uh, begins to rise. And as the service goes on, I begin to realize I did not prepare for the preaching of God's Word. Now the dream has become a little bit more nightmarish. Something happens there in the dream. I don't have the notes that I had prepared, or I don't know what the text is, but I I know that the element of preaching is coming up in the service, and my name's next to it, and I'm not ready. That's usually when I wake up in a cold sweat. Uh, we We all have dreams, but some dreams God gave, some dreams God gave to form His very Word. The very canon of Scripture, dreams He gave to form His Word, His revealed Word, His inscripturated written Word, His preserved Word for us. And as we continue in the book of Daniel, we see a dream. It's a dream that we'll cover over the next couple of of weeks. It's a dream that reveals great and glorious things, ultimately, for uh, the people of God. So the text is Daniel chapter 2 as we continue. We have seen Daniel and his companions brought into exile in the Babylonian exile in 605 B.C. and following. The temple destroyed. And now they are in this first phase in Babylon. Verses 1 to 23, Daniel 2. Let's give our attention to God's Word. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled. His sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation." They answered a second time, and they said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me 
is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel then blessed the God of heaven. He answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with Him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Well, we will not only see the substance, the content of what this dream is next week, it's a dream at the heart of which is this picture of an everlasting kingdom. But we come to learn that also this dream was given directly from God Himself. This episode that we've just read and heard, centers around certain themes. Themes like control and power, influence. Who has it, ultimately? At first, you read through chapter 1, it perhaps seems that Nebuchadnezzar has the controls. He's the one who besieged Jerusalem. He exiled the people of God. He destroyed the temple. So why is he having these dreams? Why would such a king have dreams that are causing him to be unsettled? Why would he be unsettled at all? His kingdom dominated the ancient Near East. He felt little to no threat to his security. He had the power, the wealth, the respect, the popularity. His army had just won a great victory. He had success. And now, time time after time, perhaps night after night, he's disturbed. We might even say he's, he's haunted. And it seems he's haunted by this growing suspicion that his own security, his own well-being, is being threatened by something beyond his control. 
Something beyond the visible sphere of the world, this world. And not only is his insecurity growing, but he's growing frustrated and angry. We read that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled. His sleep left him. Later, he grows in anger. What does he do? He calls his enchanters, magicians, wise men to tell him what the dream is and what it means. But he only becomes more and more angry, madder at the fact that though he pays well for the services of these servants, magicians, and enchanters, they can't probe the depths of his mind. There's places they cannot go. They can't understand what the dream is, what it means, and why it's tormenting him. He bribes them with gifts in verse 6. He threatens their lives in verse 5. Finally, they throw up their hands in verse 10 and they say, King, not a man on earth can meet the demand. None can provide understanding. And because of this, verse 12, the king, it says, was angry and very furious. And do you know whether it's in Nebuchadnezzar's day or in the first century uh, under the evil emperor Nero or in recent history through the 20th century with leaders like Stalin or Mao or Hitler or perhaps in the minds of dictators or national leaders today, we might see aspects of Nebuchadnezzar in them. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, the late Christian thinker and commentator, writes this, Man is tempted by the basic insecurity of human existence to make himself doubly secure. So he grasps after position, fame, wealth, and power. But the more he attains and the higher he climbs, the more basically insecure he feels his position, for the more terrible his fall could be. Therefore, the more he attains, the more desperately and anxiously he is driven to strive to attain. And so we have this vicious circle which produces the modern dictator and which forces the dictator in his rule to become more and more harsh, brutal, angry, and suspicious. But Nebuchadnezzar's frustration and anger and lack of control not only perhaps reveals something present in dictators, powerful leaders at times, but reminds us of something true about all humanity, including you and me. That man alone, that the world that we live in, the universe we live in alone cannot search and find the answers to the most important and ultimate questions of life. Man in all his power and wealth and fame is limited in dealing with the greatest issues of life. Why are we here at all? What does the world exist for? Where's history headed? What, if anything, comes after death? Is there ultimate meaning? More questions. Nebuchadnezzar, in some ways, represents so many people deep down who are troubled by the world. There's mystery. Can't figure it out. Troubled by their own mortality, their own purpose or lack of purpose their own limitations to figure things out. Man, I think, struggles to live with mystery and questions. 
Man wants to figure things out. It's also why at Christmas time in some malls, I've noticed there's oftentimes a whole store dedicated to selling mystery puzzles, trinkets and gadgets that are nearly impossible to solve. As if life isn't challenging enough, let's gift to one another nearly impossible puzzles to solve. For example, you can buy a thousand-piece all-white puzzle. True. There's not even a cloud to, to work with. Or you can buy one of those mystery rings where there's five or six metal rings all intertwined. It's your job to untangle all of them into a single file form. That's the purpose. I last about 30 seconds with those kinds of things. Some things are hard to solve. But you know, some things are impossible to solve without a source outside of ourselves. That's part of what's going on in the story. There's the need, the realization for uh, revelation, the need for revelation. This is also why one of my professors, John Frame, who was a student of Cornelius Van Til, the late great Reformed theologian at Westminster Seminary, would tell us that often Van Til, at the beginning of his class, would draw a large circle at the top of the board with three dots inside that circle representing the triune God, the Creator, the biblical God. And then below that and separate from that circle, he would draw a small circle representing the creation. And this was termed the the creator-creature or creation distinction. Sometimes he would draw two lines connecting them to, to reveal or illustrate God's communication with his creation. But the illustration was to remind the student that central to the Christian worldview is this creator-creature distinction that man and the world is not all that exists. That man, on his own, he's not in a closed system as some supposed. The world and universe is not in a closed system. We're not by ourselves to figure out the purpose of the world and our place in it. Rather, as verse 28 says, which we'll see next week, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. That's what we rejoice in as we gather to worship. That God, this God has revealed to us the deepest of mysteries. As Paul wrote to Colossians and and elsewhere, this word that comes to us, the mystery hidden for ages and generations has now been revealed to the saints. For God has chosen to make known how great are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ. God Himself in you, the hope of glory. Apart from the revelation of God, one is left with big question marks. If not also frustration, confusion, or like Nebuchadnezzar, anger, fury, unable in his own mind and resources however great they are, to to understand this mystery, this dream that he has, this unsettling feeling. So what does he do in an act of uncontrolled rage? He seeks to have all his enchanters, magicians, wise men destroyed, which includes Daniel and his friends. Verse 12, the king commanded that all the wise men be destroyed. Well, here's the next thing to see. What do you do 
in crisis. What do you do in crisis? Daniel learns of the king's intent, and he goes to Arioch, the captain of the guard, and says, appoint for me a time to see the king that the dream might be made known. And what does Daniel do? Verse 17, he goes to his friends and says, seek mercy from the God of heaven. Seek mercy from the God of heaven that he might reveal to us this mystery. Jesus tells us similar things in the Sermon on the Mount. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Not only is Daniel acting with a a daring, a courageous faith, he, he does not yet know what this dream is or its meaning. But he's acting with courage and faith, calling upon the Lord and calling upon his friends to call upon the Lord. But he exemplifies what the believer ought to do in times of crisis, great or small. When we need discernment in navigating life in the kingdom, he seeks the mercy and the presence of God and he calls others to do the same. In times of difficulty or crisis, as as the hymn goes, peace like a river may attendeth our way. Not because the storm necessarily has passed, but because in seeking the face and the presence of God, He grants to us the assurance of His presence and His goodness, the power of His sufficient grace. Uh, Up to this point, I think there's an important application as well. Uh, we might compare how Daniel has related to uh, the king in chapter 1 to how he is relating to him now in chapter 2. In chapter 1, you may recall, when the king prescribed a portion of his food and wine to Daniel and his friends to assimilate them, to conform them to Babylonian culture, what did Daniel essentially say? No. Wisely, he found a way in, in desiring to be focused and devoted upon his Lord alone, he says essentially no, clearly and decisively. So he separates himself there in chapter 1 from the king's will and desire. But now in chapter 2, he's saying yes, just as clearly and decisively. He does the opposite of separating himself. He involves himself in the king's affairs, seeking to bring good out of this potential human tragedy. The point is, it's very easy to oversimplify the kind of behavior we expect of others or ourselves in serving the Lord. Sometimes, we might make words like involvement or separation as kind of simple and exclusive principles, but they have to be applied. In Daniel's separation in chapter 1, and then his involvement in chapter 2, really points us to our Lord Jesus Christ and His ministry who was infinitely separate from sinners without sin, yet passionately involved in the world and life of sinners. And we look to Him that He give us wisdom, knowing what does separation look like in this world, but what does involvement look like? In seeking the mercy of God, we're told in verse 19 that then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. God revealed to Daniel 
this mysterious dream that the king has had. Perhaps the main point of the story thus far is that at this moment now, Daniel becomes a key, key man. No one else knows the mystery. No one else knows the truth of what great and powerful things God is going to do, which unfold in this dream. But Daniel knows. And so now onto the scene in Daniel is Daniel the mediator. Important language for us as believers. A mediator. He alone is able to act wisely and decisively. He alone is able to intercede. Yes, for his own life, but also for the lives of his friends, even for others in Babylon. Perhaps fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that through the descendants of Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. You see it even here. As well, I think there's a way in which we see Daniel as a type of our Lord Jesus. He points us to the one eternal mediator between God and man. The need for an intercessor, a mediator. As Peter declared, but Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Or as the prophet Isaiah a century or so earlier, also prophesying to the exiles, said the Lord saw it and it displeased Him. He saw there was no man, no one to intercede. But then His own arm brought Him salvation. He says a Redeemer will come to Zion. Arise, shine, for, your, for our light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And so in the midst of crisis, Daniel is a kind of mediator. He steps into the breach as God's man. And God reveals to him, among other things, what you have in verses 20 to 23. That this God changes seasons. This is part of what came to Daniel. That God changes seasons. He governs time and history. He raises kings and removes them. He controls the course of history. He gives understanding and reveals deep things. Can you say with Daniel... For you have given me wisdom and might. You have made known to me these deep and hidden things, at the heart of which is the gospel of Christ. This is what we have in Christ. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so I would leave us with a couple of things. First of all, what or who are we looking to for control in our lives and in our world. What are you looking to or resting in for confidence for what tomorrow brings? For peace in your heart today? Might it be the God who rules with sovereign power and interceding mercy? And two, what is our life response to God's revelation, His revelation in Christ? Verse 19 says, The mystery was revealed to Daniel, 
And what did Daniel do? What was his response? Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. It is a response of praise and adoration. Just yesterday, as I was sitting in a coffee shop, finishing up my preparations for for today, the music uh, came on. And for the first time this season, it was Christmas music. It seems to happen to me every year. I don't know if you feel that way. And I had this thought, already, already the music, it's too early. Then I thought, no, it's not too early. It's just me. It's just me. I need to bend my heart to the music. God is not to bend to accommodate our schedule. We're to bend to Him. To bend our lives in the form of praise for what great things He has done in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we give You our heart. We give You our heart and praise and thanks for Your goodness, for the glory of Your kingdom that You have made known, and for the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who rules this kingdom. Lord, we thank You for Your sovereignty, which includes not only Your authority, Your, your right to rule, but Your control, Your imminent presence, You're governing all things and working all things out for the good of your people. We pray, Lord, that you would bend our hearts and our minds toward praise, toward worship. For you have made us to that end, and there lies joy and contentment and peace. Oh Lord, may we look to you in prayer. Just as we reflected on Daniel, that that our daily life and response to you for the great things you have done in your saving mercy be a response of adoration. And help us, O Lord, do that and encourage one another in that way. That we would do it corporately as your people. Continue, Lord, to nourish us in this time not only from Your Word, but from the Lord's Supper, that it would strengthen us, cause us to rest deeply in You. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.